Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hello and welcome to this edition of World Weekly from the Financial Times. I'm Gideon Rachman. Today we're discussing the meaning of Donald Trump, the man who now seems highly likely to secure the Republican nomination for the US presidency. Is Mr Trump a threat to American democracy, as some suggest? Or should we all calm down and just get used to him? Joining me to discuss that are two of the FT's top commentators, Martin Wolf here in London and Edward Luce on the line from Washington, Ed, first of all, can we now, do you think, after Super Tuesday, assume that Trump is a strong, strong favourite to win the Republican nomination? He's a strong favourite. He hasn't got it in the bag yet because this is all about delegate maths and he's barely a quarter of the way towards the 50% threshold that he needs to get there. The good news for him is no one else is any more than a tenth of the way there and all of his rivals are going to stay in the field, which will continue to fragment the anti-Trump vote. So I would say there's two scenarios here. There's Trump takes the nomination, which I'd give a sort of two-thirds probability to. And the one-third probability is that Trump gets the largest amount of delegates, but not a majority. And we head into a brokered convention in July. But I don't see any pathway for either Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz to take the nomination other than through a brokered convention. And Martin, you wrote a very arresting column in today's paper saying that Trump is pretty close to being a threat to American democracy and therefore a threat to the world. Yes, I think he represents the apotheosis of authoritarian tendencies. What he offers people is not a coherent ideology. He doesn't have one. What he offers them is the man on a white horse, as it were, the leader who will see things right, who will be a winner and will make America a winner, make America great again, and promises in completely unspecified ways to solve the problems of the angry and frustrated people who find where they are now really frightening. So it's an absolutely classic sort of authoritarian promise of successful leadership. And he has, of course, expressed his views on many subjects like Muslims, women, criticism from the newsprint in very authoritarian ways. And if he were president, one would have to fear that the way he would use what is actually a very powerful office with tremendous authority with these sorts of views and this sort of popular backing. And you also make the point that, in a sense, when the American framers of the Constitution wrote the Constitution, they were worried precisely about this kind of problem, about an overpowerful president? Well, they made a very subtle balance to the issue. I quote Alexander Hamilton, one of the most important of all the founding fathers, who was, I think, the one who really was convincing on the need to have an energetic executive, that it couldn't be deliberately enfeebled as 
as they knew very well the Roman Republic had done by splitting all the offices. He explicitly argued for a very strong executive president and he argued that the failure of the first constitution was due to this absence. But of course he was also aware and they were all also aware that this was potentially very dangerous. You would need a strong executive but he needed to be a moral human being of course, properly responsible for his actions and surrounded by constraining forces, Congress, the Supreme Court and so forth. Now subsequent events have shown that in times of national crisis or perceived national crises, strong presidents like Abraham Lincoln and FDR have actually gone very, very far in using the executive powers. But in the end, the system has brought them back and their own constraints have brought them back. Would that be true of Trump now? Well, we might see. And meanwhile, Ed, Trump's rise presents a huge dilemma for the conventional Republican Party, many of whom are obviously horrified by his essential takeover of the party. How do you think they're going to react? Well, um, by being divided, because what's helping Trump at the moment is the, the most viable challenger to him is Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz has won three of the 15 states to have held primaries so far. Trump has won 10, and Marco Rubio has only won one. So Ted Cruz is even more disliked by the Republican establishment, and particularly by his colleagues in the Senate, and more feared by them than Donald Trump. So the establishment is split, and that's something that Trump has benefited from and will continue to benefit from. In terms of advisors, you know, the odd thing is that he hasn't got any. There's nobody in the foreign policy sphere from the traditional conservative think tanks, nor on the economic side, who can help explain to the public, to the media, to flesh out Donald Trump's plans. He hasn't really got any plans. In terms of what Martin was talking about, Trump having a lot of power in a potentially very potent executive role of the US commander-in-chief, there's an $11 trillion tax cut in Trump's plans. We don't know too many more details other than it would be the most regressive and large tax cut in history. And people like Donald Trump would end up with a, a vastly lower tax bill. And I imagine things like that would in practice go down very well with the Republican Congress. But I mean, so far, only one senator, Jeff Sessions, has come out and endorsed him. Let's say we get to the convention now, as you say, looking probable with Trump as the nominee. Do you think a substantial number of Republican senators will say, sorry, we can't back this guy? Or do you think in the end they'll all fall in line? It depends on the polls. I mean, if it looks like Trump is competing with Hillary and that he's spreading his popularity beyond the Republican electorate, then a lot more will go with him than if it looks like Hillary is cruising to a victory. Um, Mitch McConnell, the leader of the Republicans in the Senate, has made it clear that he will liberate his colleagues to campaign on whatever basis they like to get re-elected in November if Trump is the nominee and if Trump is heading to a defeat. So it would depend on the poll numbers. They're not, in other words, going to respond for the most part on grounds of principle, but on whatever their measure of expediency happens to be. And Martin, you've argued for some time, actually, that in a sense, Trump, far from being an aberration, takes some of the instincts of the modern Republican Party and just trumps them, if you like. 
Yes, it seems to me, I mean, these ideas are in no way at all original, of course, that Trump is appealing to people who feel genuine anxiety and anger, many of whom are in the base of the Republican Party, but it appeals to some degree beyond them. And he's doing so in ways that basically, let's be very clear, stoke up paranoia. That's the core of this appeal. And of course, it's obvious to anyone who's been following what the Republican Party has been doing for quite a long time. I would suggest uh, decades, not just years, but particularly since President Obama was elected, that the politics of paranoia have been a salient way, a central way, not the only way, of attracting the base. You know, that President Obama was some sort of alien, not really a proper president at all, that his aim was to destroy America, that America was surrounded by conspirators trying to destroy it, and that people should be very, very frightened. And This came out also in the response to terrorism, for example. It's remarkable, for example, that in some way that America has been more frightened by the events in Paris than the French. So this politics of paranoia has become a driving force catastrophically, I think, in the Republican Party. And Trump has seen you can use that and dump all the economic liberalism or what we would call liberalism, the libertarianism, dump the free markets, all that stuff. Go for protection. Go for the authoritarian package on everything. And it works. And of course, it presents a huge dilemma, not just for Americans, or American liberals, if you like, or people who believe in conventional politics. But for everybody in the outside world, I mean, I think of myself, you know, the worldview I've propagated through the pages of the Financial Times is based on the idea that the United States is a good thing, by and large. And what does one say if Donald Trump becomes president? Well, even if he doesn't become president, and that becomes an even more serious point, but assume he just is in that the leader of the Republican Party into the election as presidential candidate, well, people around the world are going to say, we learned about democracy from America. We believed in democracy because of America. It's the American role that has made us believe in free markets and all the rest of it. And now the candidate of the Republican Party, one of the great parties, the free market party, is saying they believe in protection. They believe in stopping immigration pretty well completely. They believe that the Americans are surrounded by enemies, including about a fifth of the world's population, Muslims. So what are the values that the U.S. has been teaching us? What of those should we still believe in? And beyond that, then, of course, then if he does win, the actions he might take in all these fields, which I think will be completely transformative, they will completely upend the whole notion of the U.S. role in the international order. I think this is a truly revolutionary moment and not in a good way. And Ed, of course, the American elections, maybe all the very serious points about it are sometimes submerged because it's such a spectacle, and, and uh, you know, particularly when a reality television star is the leading figure. But do you get a kind of sense of panic amongst the American intelligentsia now? Oh, yes, a panic and disbelief. And intelligentsia in the broadest term, this includes conservative intellectuals, liberals, others, it's really across the board, because this is a populist movement that disdains expertise and experience and knowledge and empiricism and so forth. And so in that sense, it's very much a non-ideological anti-politics sort of drive that Trump represents. I think that the chances of Trump winning in November are very hazardous to predict. But if you look at where most Americans are in terms of immigration, in terms of race relations, in terms of gay marriage, women's participation, equal pay, etc., then Trump should lose this election. But it's very, very hard 
when there's such a strong anti-establishment sentiment and when the person Hillary Clinton representing all those sort of modern progressive views herself personifies the establishment and is a flawed candidate on the campaign trail. It's very, very hard to be confident in that prediction. In other circumstances, you would be. In this, I'm afraid I'm not. And the people I talk to, the establishment types I talk to are very much not. They're worried. They're worried and they have grounds to be. Well, on that rather solemn note, we'll end it for this week. Thank you very much indeed, Edward Luce in Washington. Thanks also to Martin Wolf here in London. That's it for this week. Until next week, goodbye. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor. What's a mistake they made that changed their approach? And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.